Good morning. My name's Chris. Um, one of the pastors here at Riverstone. Glad you're here today. We are walking through uh, the book of Acts. And normally we've been reading large chunks. And today, instead of reading a very, very large chunk, almost two and a half uh, chapters, I'm going to kind of tell you, I'm going to distill, I'm going to tell the story of what happens in the end of 11, 12, and 13. Um, and we pick it up today uh, after what, for the Jews, and I'd encourage you if you're new, just popping in, man, two weeks ago, we'll really give you a snapshot of the entire book of Acts. Um, uh, uh, it'll kind of distill it down if you want to go back and listen. But So we're picking it up after um, what for the Jews would have been the most important chapters of the entire book. Uh, the most shocking uh, chapters 10 and 11 are undisputably the climax of the book of Acts. Um, everything prior to the book in the literary is leading up to that point, and everything after this point in the book of Acts will now be in the wake of what happened in the chapters uh, 10 and 11, um, which was uh, non-Jews getting in on this messianic fulfillment of Jesus. That was the big shocker. It shocked them now, and despite all of our progress, we still have ethnic and racial prejudices that the gospel shocks. The rest of the New Testament, y'all, is informed by what happens in, the chap in chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Acts, which I showed extensively two weeks ago. So um, this new community that's being kind of birthed is going to be marked by cultural conflict. We said this two weeks ago. You know, so often, church is the place we come to show everyone else that they're just having, I just want to say real quick, they're having a party over there. We need to up our game, guys, because they are having way more fun than we are. I mean, I'm going to go over there next week. Um, got distracted. Okay, the New Testament is going to be marked by cultural ethnic conflict, primarily between Jew and Gentile. Um, and, and it's going to be what happens, and I'm, I'm telling you, two weeks ago, just go listen. What happens when multi-ethnic, multi-class, multi-race do life together? And the, almost the rest of the New Testament is addressing this issue, okay? The conflict that happens when people of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different religions start, begin to do life together. In fact, the characteristics of this new Jesus community was radically different than the culture surrounding it in many ways. So it wasn't just that Jew and Gentile were mixing together. That was unheard of first century, okay? We got to get in their mindset. Jews did not go in Gentiles' houses, didn't eat dinner with them, didn't talk with them. If you're going to stay ceremonially clean, you got to stay away from Gentiles, all right? That's why in John, I think it was 18, we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, the, the Pharisees wouldn't, when Jesus is crucified, you remember that. I don't know if you're a Christian, if you remember this, if you grew up in Bible church or not, grew up in Bible church. When the, the Pharisees brought Jesus to Pilate, they would not go in his house because it would make them ceremonially unclean, right? There was a massive divide between Jew and Gentile. So not only was this new community, they didn't know what to make of this new community because now Jew and Gentiles are hanging out, doing, they're eating together, right? Doing life together. So not only was there that, but this new community has this radical care for the poor. 
They're just organizing around feeding widows and taking care of the poor. No one has need among them. You get in with these Christians and they just give you the shirt off their back. There's these extremely, extravagantly generous crew of people in this first century, okay? They were marked by that extravagant love sharing from each Even their domestic life was radically different than the culture around it. They held, get this, they held men responsible. You think, well, don't we do that? Well, in their day, men could dismiss their wife on a whim with zero responsibility. In their day, men could beat and kill their slave, their servant, without any ramifications. Men in many ways were <laughs> king of their little kingdom and can do whatever they wanted. And Christians said, nah, nope. He said, man, you are under the rule and reign of Jesus, just like your wife, just like your servant, and you will stand accountable to him one day. Therefore, they held men responsible for their actions. That was in stark contrast to the culture around them. They were progressive in this way, revolutionary in this way, right? They, the Christians said, in the kingdom, man, you love and serve your wife. You don't think that's radical? It's radical today. Huh? Serve your wife. You get beneath her and lift her up. That's what the Bible prescribes for Christian marriage. Some of y'all are gonna leave now. You're like, I didn't sign up for this, right? And because their mantra was Jesus is Lord, instead of the cultural mantra, Caesar is Lord. See, if you said Jesus is Lord, they said, well, that's not how that phrase goes. That phrase goes, Caesar is Lord. Caesar was divine, he was divinity. Because their phrase was, Jesus is Lord, it would make Rome suspicious that they were some kind of political uprising. Although the Romans would never really nail them for it, uh, they were suspicious of it. But perhaps the most remarkable characteristic of this new community that springs up in the first world, or first century, was that they were marked by the presence of a supernatural power. People were healed. People would travel from city states away to come and figure out what was why their uncle was lame but could walk now. Why they heard about blind people that came to this community and regained their vision. That surely was the most remarkable and miraculous thing that marked this new community. So much so that the culture around them would nickname them little Christs. <laughs> they said you guys look just like that crazy guy. You know that guy that came and he was like a prophet and they killed him, they crucified him, he healed people. You guys look just like him. Not physically, but like you're talking like him. You're doing the same stuff he was doing. And so they nicknamed him Christians, little Christs, little embodiments of Jesus, like they were little extensions of him himself. And it was a, term of ridicule and mockery. The community would be marked by a ferocious insistence on the supremacy and the power and the glory of Jesus over sin and sickness, over politics and kings, over opposition and persecution, even over death. These crazy Christians loved this man, Jesus. They would not stop talking about him. They 
had affections for him. And by the power of the Spirit, began to multiply like Catholic rabbits, all right? Just explode over the new. Thank you. You got it. Someone got it. Look it up. This community <laughs> was subversive and also submissive. They were very subversive, this new community. They ignored social distinctions of race and class that were well-established in society, right? They took care of the poor. They wouldn't go to Roman temples to worship gods. They insisted that Jesus was Lord. That's all subversive in their culture, contradictory to the flow that their culture was accustomed to. It was subversive, but they were submissive as well. They paid taxes. They worked. They participated in commerce. They weren't anarchists. They were subversive, but they were, they were also submissive. So we pick it up today as this new movement is turning outward. It's turning towards the Gentiles, towards the nations. It's step three of Jesus's blueprint he gave us in the first chapter. First chapter, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And today, what we're seeing now is the turning of this new community to the ends of the earth. Step three, okay? So before we jump in, let me pray for us. Then we'll chat. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that your peace and your clarity would rest on us. Lord, for the confusion, the frustration, the distractions that so dominate our minds, Holy Spirit, come and speak peace to the storm. God, I pray for those of us who feel on the outside and I pray that today we would be invited to the inside, Lord, that we would know and begin to see why they said Jesus was so glorious. Open our eyes. Holy Spirit, reveal to us the worth and the value of Jesus. Let me pray these things. Amen. So after the shocking news that the Gentiles get in on this in the middle of chapter 11. Luke then reminds us of the eighth chapter of Acts where persecution breaks out. Stephen is stoned in the middle of the day, murder and bloodshed, the first Christian martyr. And when that happens, the Christians are scattered all over. So Luke brings us back to that point. And he says, they were scattered all the way to Antioch. Let's see that map real quick. Let's go ahead and do this. Antioch was all the way at the very top. Here we go, right here. This is Syria, Antioch. So there's two things about the New Testament that you need to know. <laughs> they were short on city names because there's many. So there's Antioch over here, Syria, Antioch. There's also Antioch over here above Pisidia. You see that one? Super confusing. Thanks, New Testament. The second thing they're short of is names. <laughs> they all have the same name, so it can be very confusing. Anyway, um, when the... Apostles are scattered and persecution breaks out. Some of them go all the way up. This is actually the, the map of, of Saul's first missionary journey. So this is what we're going to be talking about. They go all the way up to Antioch. Thank you. You can take the map away. I just wanted to give you that. We'll probably refer to it again. And as the disciples are scattered from persecution, they're running for their lives, right? It says in, Luke, in um, Acts 11 that they are preaching to no one except the Jews. And then it says this phrase, but there were some. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, these nameless men, it says they were also preaching 
to the Gentiles. Now, if you've been with us, you know why this is so shocking, right? Because it took a vision and an angel and a crazy, you know, thing that, that Peter had and the angel came and the guys came. If you remember chapters 10 and 11, right? It took all that stuff for Peter to say, hey, the Gentiles get it. And yet here are these nameless men from Cyrene and Cyprus who say, no, the Gentiles get in too. And they're already preaching to the Gentiles. We're not getting any information of why they thought that was okay, but here they are led by the spirit preaching to the Gentiles already. And so they send, the, the disciples in Jerusalem send Barnabas up to Antioch to check it out, right? And Barnabas notices that the hand of the Lord is with them, okay? He, Barnabas is described as a good man, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, sent from, sent from Jerusalem to check it out. And he says that the grace of God's with him, the hand of the Lord's with him. Barnabas, we're gonna spend a little bit of time on Barnabas today, um, whose real name is Joseph, uh, was nicknamed son of encouragement, okay? So when Barnabas goes up, son of encouragement, this really encouraging guy. I don't know if you have someone in your life that's just super encouraging. You hang out with him. You're like, man, you know, I feel better. You know, I feel able, you know, he's one of those guys. Um, so he goes to Antioch. He figures out, okay, this church is happening, man. Something's going on in Antioch. Earlier, they had sent Saul away. They sent Saul home. You remember this? I don't know if you remember this, but literally they were like, Saul, everyone's trying to kill you, bro. Just go home. Right? So he goes to Tarsus. So Barnabas goes to Antioch, realizes, let's see the map again, realizes that Tarsus is, is just around the corner. And so there's Tarsus right there. See it? That's where Saul, Saul of Tarsus, that's where he's from. And so he goes around to Tarsus and gets Saul uh, and brings him back to Antioch and says, hey man, this, something's happening in Antioch. Um, this is twice now that we've seen Barnabas go out and invite Saul in. I don't know if you've noticed that, right? He apparently, before anyone else, saw the hand of God on Saul and believed God had plans for this man and believed and acted in that love for this man, um, even though he had all sorts of reasons to avoid Saul, okay? But twice, Barnabas reaches out to Saul and invites him in, once in Jerusalem and once here. And Barnabas is gonna stick with Saul for the rest, almost all of his missionary journeys. He's his buddy, he's his partner, right? And so while this dude, Barnabas, is not mentioned much in the New Testament, he is clearly instrumental to the whole story, but arguably maybe the most important, one of the most important characters of how the book of Acts is formed because he's the guy who goes out and invites Saul to come in, who then would become the primary missionary that the rest of the book of Acts is about, right? He never, Barnabas never could have known the degree of which Saul, or who would become Paul would impact not only the book of Acts, but all of New Testament theology. Saul alone pins 13 books of the New Testament. There's no way Barney at that point would have known the impact Saul was going to have on the church. And yet he goes and reaches out to him twice and brings him in. Let's think about this for a second. Saul, the guy who was not just opposing Christianity a couple chapters ago, he wasn't just like, you know, sniping people on Facebook, right? He wasn't just like saying, I don't agree with it. No, he was persecuting them, tracking them down, had a license to kill, going door to door, knocking down doors, dragging off men and women, putting them in jail. Uh, you think your political thing is climate's crazy, right? This dude was knocking down doors and imprisoning people who thought differently than him. Barnabas had all sorts of reasons to avoid this guy. All sorts of reasons to be like, you know, you know there were people who said, Barney, don't touch that dude with the 10 foot pole. He was just killing us, man. And Barney says, mm-mm, nah. And we're learning something about what it means to be a person of faith full of the Holy Spirit. 
primarily that we don't close the door on anybody. Amen. Huh? We just like to close doors, don't we, these days, huh? You're not in my group. You're not in my group. And here Barney is reaching across. This is the first world equivalent, first world, I keep saying that, first century equivalent of reaching across the aisle and inviting someone you disagree with in. Twice the, the dude does it. Twice reaches out to this man who would then pin 13 books of the New Testament, right? He seeks out this guy that everyone was terrified of just a few chapters ago, right? It wasn't just disagreeing. He was hunting down Christians, right? Barnabas was being led by the Spirit, something that comes up in the New Testament a whole lot, being led by the Spirit, right? To put aside his differences, put aside his fear, his anxiety about this guy, and invites him into relationship. Not only relationship, but purpose, mission. He partners with this man and says, let's do this together. Takes a risk on this guy who claims he had an encounter with Jesus, but you know people claim that kind of stuff all the time. Huh? The disciples thought Paul was a mole. Don't trust him. He's lying. And Barnabas says, no, I'm going to invite him and takes a risk on him, right? We're learning what it means to be a person full of the Holy Spirit who reaches out in kindness and extends relational. I want you to hear this phrase. Can you listen to this phrase? Can you hear this phrase? Relational openness. Relational openness. Can we just let the dust settle for a second and ruminate on what it looks like to live in relational openness? Should we just pray and go home? Is that all we need today? That's all we need. We're done. I'm just kidding. Relational openness, y'all. Invites this man into relationship who was violently opposing his crew just chapters before. There's a whole lot of Christians out there that would relieve themselves of high blood pressure and turmoil if they'd begin taking some cues from our buddy Barney here and allow the Holy Spirit to bear some weight on how they interact with people they'd consider outside their little cultural and ideological social clubs. Barnabas seems to be the very kind of man that we need today to give leadership in a moment of chaos and anxiety and leads in relational openness and invitational manner of opening doors, not closing them. The end of 11 tells us that it was in Antioch, that church up north, right, that the Gentiles began to call uh, the disciples Christians. We only see that word Christian three times in the New Testament. Most of the time, the writers of the New Testament refer to themselves as brothers or saints or disciples, but the term took root, and now today that's what we're called, right? So Barney and Paul, who in chapter 13 now is referred to as Paul, set up camp in Antioch. It is their home base for the rest of the book, right? Antioch, and for good reason. Antioch was a booming metropolis. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, only, only behind Rome and Alexandria. It was a hub of transportation. And if you look at the map, which I, maybe we should just keep it up there. I keep having you do it. If you look at the map, it's kind of one of these places where you can kind of get anywhere from, right? It's in the corner. You can go down south. You can go, uh, uh, what is that? Which way is that? East? No, it's west. It's west. Thank you. All, all of, which is interesting, all of Paul's uh, missionary journeys are west. Um, just interesting to note that. 
You can get it anywhere from there. Um, it's kind of like you can compare it to New York's Grand Central Station or even Atlanta back in the day, known as Terminus, right? It was a, a hub from where you could get a lot of places, the third largest city in the entire empire. All the roads kind of led to there. You could get anywhere from it. So that it became their home base. And chapter 12 then takes us back to Jerusalem. Okay, chapter 12, at the beginning of chapter 12, it says that Herod begins to persecute the church. So this is what happened. I'm just going to tell you the story real quick, and then we'll keep moving, right? Um, in Jerusalem, Herod kills one of the 12 apostles, James, uh, the brother of John, uh, with, it says, with the sword, right? And it says that when he saw it pleased the people, then he began to persecute other Christians as well. And so he arrests Peter in the beginning of 12 and more than likely to kill him the next day. Herod plays on the Jewish contempt for the Christian and decides to earn some brownie points by persecuting the church. This is a marriage of political power and the desire for the praise of men and violence. And it is a marriage that would mark the history of the church for the rest of its life. Political power, desire for the praise of men and violence culminating together in the persecution of the church that still happens today. To Herod's embarrassment, Peter breaks out of jail, well, rather, is busted out of jail in the middle of the night by an angel, right? The chains literally says they fall off of Peter. Middle of the night, doors just open and bro walks to the middle of the town and he thinks he's having a dream or a vision. And it says when he comes to himself, he realizes I've been rescued. All right. And he goes to find the disciples who are praying at John's house. He goes and knocks on the door, right? Hey guys, it's me. It's Peter. I'm out of jail. And this poor little servant girl, Rhonda, if you've read this before, this poor little servant girl, Rhonda goes to the door. Okay. Realizes it's Peter freaks out of her mind, runs back to the disciples and says, Peter's at the door and forgets to let Peter in. And so then the disciples who are praying for Peter's release, probably begin to argue with Rhonda. No, Peter's not at the door. And she's like, I'm telling you, he's at the door and all the time. This fugitive from the law is like, Hey guys, guys, let me in, let me in. Right. And they're just arguing, Rhonda, you're crazy. He's not out. And here he's out of the door. And finally they hear him knocking and then he busts in and it says that they are amazed. They're amazed. They're just blown away. And this is something that's going to mark the birth of the church and daggum it should mark us too, that they are just continually in wonder at the power of God. They just don't seem to think God cares that much. Maybe that he doesn't care. Maybe he does care. Maybe he doesn't have the power. And every time God breaks through, they're amazed. They're, the word in the New Testament so often is lose their mind. Like they're beside themselves. They're like, this is crazy. They can't seem to get in the framework that God both loves them and longs to engage with them in real and intimate ways. Wonder and amazement will go on to mark the birth of the church. We're gonna see it over and over again. It's like God is busting down every obstacle of faith he can find in these people. Oh, you don't believe in me? Kicks the door down, amazed in wonder over and over and over again, right? He's going down the line, obliterating every ounce of disbelief that these poor guys had in his goodness and in his power. They are continually being thrown off by the power of God every time it surprises them. And you'd think, you'd be like, you'd start kind of getting used to it, right? Like you guys just saw someone raised from the dead, you saw this guy get healed, and yet every time it surprises them and amazes them. They just struggle to get into the mindset which believes God is for them and longs to engage with them. So, Peter is expecting to be killed. He's set free and they're completely overwhelmed. And this is a side note. 
And this gives you a, an insight into the history of labor <laughs> in, in the first century. Um, the, the guards that were assigned to Peter, who he, you know, they failed, right? Herod had them killed. So not a great time in history for labor rights. Chapter 13 opens up back in Antioch, right? About 300 miles, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So that's 12, is 13, right? The church is well established in Antioch now. We don't necessarily know the timeline, but, it, but Luke says, who's the author of Acts, he says, there's elders there, there's prophets, there's teachers, and he includes, Luke includes this short list of people who are in the church in Antioch. And you might, sometimes you see these lists and we just kind of skip past them, but it's an interesting list. Simeon, who was called Niger, which is Latin for black. <laughs> okay. So dude had a nickname. <laughs> Lucius of Cyrene, don't know who that is. And then Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch. So why do you think Luke would include this? I want to tell you something about scripture. There's no sentence wasted. Why do you think Luke would include this? Well, he's, he's trying to point something out. He's saying, there's people of every race, people of every class. You know, Manian, the lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, was the upper crust of society, right? And here this guy is eating dinner with broken poor people, doing life together. The gospel obliterates social divides, y'all. It obliterates it just knocks it off its high horse, knocks it off its smut, self-righteous, superior high horse. The gospel levels the playing field. Lord Jesus, help us level the playing field in our thinking. These are people of different ethnicity backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different class backgrounds, and he too, this guy, this, this friend of Herod, a Roman, believes, okay? And it says that they're worshiping. They're fasting and they're praying. And in 13.2, it says this, very interesting sentence in 13.2. You can go read it later. It says, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So they fast some more, they pray some more, they lay hands on Paul now, who's for the rest of the book of Acts is now gonna be called Paul. A lot of people ascribe the Saul-Paul thing to something that like God you know, gave him a new name. It's not actually in, in the text. What we see in the text is that in 13, it says Saul, who was also called Paul. And then for the rest, and so Luke kind of uses it as a literary device to distinguish between the transformation that Christ has in, in Saul's life. Uh, what theologians and historians are going to tell us is that very much like, very, like Eastern um, cultures and societies, they often have a name for, the, for their crew, and then they have their like, other name, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? So this was very true in that culture. And so Saul went by Saul to his Jewish brothers, to the outsiders, to the Gentiles, he went by Paul. And so Luke uses that. So that's why in his letters, he's signing himself Paul because he's writing these to Gentiles, right? So Luke uses that as a literary device. Side note, all right. I just find things like that interesting. Sorry, no one else does. You guys, anyway. They fast some more. They pray some more. Lay hands on Paul and Barnabas and send them to Cyprus to preach to the Gentiles. This is the first Christian missionary uh, effort to the Gentiles. And this is something that I want to sit with um, and we won't take too much longer, okay? Um, we get a lot of info on this idea in the book of Acts. And it's, it's this, how the early church was led by the Spirit, and I think it applies to us in a big way. How did they know the Holy Spirit said? That's what it says. Does anyone wonder about that? Does anyone ever hear other people talking about God told me this and God told me that? And you're like, well, how does that work? Because God never told me. I don't know. You know, anyone? Anyone struggle with that? 
Okay, thank you. You're going to leave me up here all on my own. I can, oh, you're, you're on your own, dude. God talks to me all the time. Got the red phone to heaven. Okay, not me. I don't. All right, I just don't. Sometimes people talk about that like there's just like a, like a conversation. I don't, I don't know how that sounds or works. I just don't get those type of <laughs> communications from heaven. All right, anyway. But we're told a lot about this in the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament. And we're not told that it's an audible voice like in other places of scripture where it is a clear audible voice. Right here, it just says the Holy Spirit said. And then later on, it says that it seemed right to the Holy Spirit and to us. They all felt that this was the right thing to do. And it says together, they fasted and prayed, felt this direction and had this kind of corporate witness as to, hey, yeah, we all agree. We think Paul and Barnabas should, should go, should, should, should go to... Do this mission. They lay their hands on them and pray for them. What we see in the New Testament is not, when it comes to being led by the Spirit and hearing the voice of God, what we see in the New Testament is not a prophet from on high with his personal direct line to heaven declaring to the helpless community the word of the Lord. That is not what we see in the New Testament. It is what we see in the Old Testament. Very much so. In fact, in the Old Testament, you, you kind of get this uh, feeling of they talk to God for us and they come down and they, so like people still talk, still treat pastors like this. It's absurd, right? You deal with God for me. You, you tell me what God's saying and you can disseminate it down to us and we kind of like victimize ourselves. I don't know what's going on. You just tell me now and just opt out of knowing God and hearing God and being led by God and pastor, you live Christianity. I pay you, you live Christianity for me. It still happens today, but we don't see that in the New Testament. You know what we see in the New Testament? Not this prophet coming down saying, this is what God is saying, but rather we see a communal discernment of what the Holy Spirit is doing and leading in the church. It happens together. In the New Testament, we'll see it over and over again. People come together, they pray, they fast, they get out their scripture, and they say, yes, we all think maybe God is doing that. Do we know? No, it just seems that way. In Acts 13, it says, it seems that way. Together, they said, they had this corporate witness and they said, it seems right to the Holy Spirit and to us. Go for it. Doesn't, it doesn't have a very definitive and clear leadership thing going on. It seems right. Don't we just want lightning to strike from heaven? I mean, I just want like, Lord, help me. Just, you know, close the red light me and green light me, you know? Red light, green light, you know? Give me, I need clear directions. And so often we don't get that. It says in 13, it says, it seemed right to the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 15, we're going to see this very similar thing. In Acts 15, there's the Jerusalem Council. You know what the Jerusalem Council was about? It's about what I've been telling you the whole rest of the New Testament is about. They were arguing over whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised. So this is Acts 15. We're not there yet. So when the Jerusalem Council comes together, do you know how they discern the word of the Lord? It says they debated much. It says much debate. So they get together and they argue it out. They get their Bibles out, and you know what else they do? They talk about what God had done. They get together and say, God did this, man. We saw it. All of us saw it. You remember that? Yeah, I was there. That's right. God did that. And the scripture says this. And then this, and someone says, you're an idiot. No, that's not how it goes. They fought. They argued with their Bibles open. Guys, are you, that, do, you have an, do you have an avenue for that? Can you, is that okay? I mean, I, sometimes I just want someone to disagree with me. In small group. You know what I'm talking about? Everyone's like, oh, amen. Yes, Lord. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, you know what I mean? Like push back somebody. Open the scripture. Use your brain. And that's what they do in Acts 15. 
They get out the scripture, they call to mind what God had did, and together come to a communal agreement. We think the spirit is saying this, let's go. And they take a risk. And God does that, man. What I'm trying to combat is this hyper-spiritual idea that those that hear from God only do so in complete isolation from the community, right? Aloft on the mountain and like Moses, they come down from their spiritual superiority and give us the word of the Lord to all us nominal believers. That's just not what we see in the New Testament. We see rather that the community of faith through prayer, through fasting, through debate, through scripture, through humility, through relational accountability together discern the leadings of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we have each other for a purpose, y'all. And primarily, I would argue, one of the main purposes and roles of the church is to help each other discern what is God saying. Amen. Where should we go? What should we do? How should we act? How should we speak? Should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Should I go on this path? What do you think? You know how it looks in my life? I, I have a direction. There's something in front of me. I have to make a decision. I pray. I seek God. I ask God. God, lead me. Guide me. I believe you can do it, Lord. Sometimes I don't feel it. Sometimes I don't, not certain, but Lord, show me. And then when I, if I feel like I have a direction, I go to my brother that I love and I say, hey man, listen, this is the direction. This is the, this is the issue in front of me. This is the fork in the road. What do you think? And he says, you're an idiot. <laughs> I say, okay, yeah, you're probably right. Don't go left. And then I go to someone else and I say, hey brother, this is the deal. Yeah, he's right. You're an idiot. You should go this way. You know what? I'm gonna submit to your wisdom. I'm gonna go this way, even though I think I should go this way. It's what living in community and relationship looks like. Some of us don't have that. Some of us don't, have not opened ourselves up to being pushed back on. We've surrounded ourselves with yes men. You need to find someone who will push back on your thinking. You need to treasure them and value them and pursue them. I'm thankful for the men in my life who would tell me when I'm being an idiot. Now, despite the fact, right, that this leading of the Spirit is discerned in relationship and community, that does not in any way excuse the Christian from personal intimacy and solitude with the Lord. Jesus routinely escaped crowds and community to be alone with God, and we should too. If it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander, right? In fact, Paul would commit many pages of the New Testament, of his letters, as to what it means to be individually led by the Spirit. And basically, Paul would say this when it comes to being led by the Spirit. You have one of two paths to take. You are either led by the flesh or you're led by the Spirit. Those are your two options. And if you're not led by the Spirit of God, then you are led by the depravity of your own fleshly nature. Paul would say that we know this by the things we think about, by the things we yield to, and those will indicate what we are being led by. Okay, I have a whole thing of Romans. I'm going to skip it so we can just for time's sake. The pattern we see in Acts and one of the primary roles of the community of faith, if you want to look into that, it's Romans 8. Go read it. It talks about being led by the Spirit. The pattern we see in Acts, one of the primary roles of the community of faith is to help each other discern the leadership of the Holy Spirit together in relationships, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever had this as well. Sometimes it'll look like this. You're, you're praying with people. You've gathered to pray. Someone has 
a predicament and you're all together praying. And maybe someone says, you know what, I, I, think, I think maybe God is saying this. Or maybe sometimes, I don't know if you've experienced this. I don't even know if you think this is possible. But sometimes we're praying together with friends over, over an issue. And someone will say, you know what, I see this weird picture. Um, like has happened in my life many times. And the picture bears to wait on the situation. And oftentimes what happens is multiple people will say, you know what, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's from the Lord. And, the, and God can work like that in, in, in miraculous ways. I don't know where you land on whether or not you believe God can speak to you, whether or not he wants to or can or can break through to you. But can I just say to you, being led by the Spirit is an undeniable reality of the New Testament. And it is not simply describing what happened in the early church, but is prescribing what it means to be a Christian. It means to be led by something other than your own wisdom. That's what it means to be a Christian, y'all means to be led by something else than your own appetites. means putting those in their right order and giving authority and leadership in your life to someone else, Jesus, King, right? The whole idea of Lord, King, he calls the shots, right? It's what it means to be a Christian. And if you don't believe God can speak to you, if you don't believe that he can influence you, how can you be led? You can be led by an inanimate object? object? You can be led by a rock? Is the tree going to lead you? No. How can you be led by someone you don't believe can talk? Faith is a necessary ingredient to be led by the Spirit. And if you have anything less than that, then your Christianity is not biblical Christianity. Okay? It's something else. It is prescribed in the New Testament. Not only are you missing out on knowing God, you're missing out on the adventure of following him. If you don't believe that being led by the Spirit is a plausible reality that can happen in your life. And God, in fact, wants to happen. So they have this corporate witness. They send Paul and Barnabas to Cyprus. I'm just going to tell you real quick what happens on this first missionary journey. And it kind of uh, rotates around two cities. Okay, then we'll be out of here. Sorry, I'm going long today, right? They get to Paphos, city Paphos. They meet this guy, Sergius, who is a part of a proconsul. No one knows what a proconsul is, so I had to look it up. A proconsul is the governing Roman authority that the Senate had assigned, okay? So these are political, this is a political group. These are governing authorities. Paul and Barnabas go to this governing authority, and one of the guys who's described as an intelligent man says, hey, come preach to us. Come tell us about this crazy guy, Jesus. Preach your message. But there's another guy on the proconsul who's described as a Jewish false prophet. His name is Elimus. And he opposes Paul and Barnabas and seeks to dissuade the proconsul from listening to the message, right? And then Paul says this to this guy. This is crazy. Now, this is insane. This is a Jew, all right? So this is like Paul's bro, and this is what he says to him. This is insane, 13.9. Paul, Saul, who was also called Paul, there's a transition, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him, being this false prophet Jewish guy, and said, you son of the devil, <laughs> That's how you want to start your conversation with someone. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. And you think, bro, okay, just, just okay, we got your point. It keeps going. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? What an interesting indictment. Provoking indictment. You are making crooked the path that God has made straight. And now behold, the Lord, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable, and unable to see the sun for a time. So you got to fit that in your theology. 
immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking to be led by the hand. It was just for a time, a couple days maybe. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. See, it's interesting. What we're gonna see in the New Testament, when the miraculous happened, when these things happened, every other perceived power and authority bends the knee to Jesus. This guy was a magician. He tricked the people, maintained power with the people. And every other perceived source of power in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when this stuff happens, they bend the knee to Jesus. So you know, Elimus had some time to reflect on his life choices. And this whole governing body is confronted with the kingdom of God and it says that they believed. So Saul, uh, now only referred to as Paul, goes on to Poseidon. And here we see, this is where I want to end today, where we're going to land the plane. In Poseidon, we see, which is called, also called Antioch, which is super confusing if you're just reading it by yourself. Um, here we see the pattern that will emerge for the rest of the book of Acts. We're going to see a pattern in what Paul does and a pattern in his hearers. Okay, so we're just going to talk about that. Then we're going to be done. Um, let me tell you what happens. On the Sabbath, this is what Paul is going to do when he goes into all of the towns. Uh, the Jews had been spread all over the Roman Empire, the diaspora, right? And so there were synagogues everywhere. So anywhere he went to a town, he would first go to the Jewish synagogue and he would preach at church, okay? So like guest preachers, preach at church. And then Paul's gonna set up camp in, in the commerce area. He was a tent maker. And then he would use that place of commercial interaction as his secondary launch pad to preach the gospel, okay? So first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles in commerce, okay? So he goes to this synagogue in this city and uh, the leaders, I don't know how they did this or why they did this, but the leaders of the synagogue say, brother, share some encouraging words, which is a big mistake, right? Like you just, that's why, that's why I don't do open mics, you know? And Paul, and Paul gets up and gives this lengthy sermon, okay? Preaches the gospel, basically says everyone who believes in Jesus is freed from everything that the law couldn't free you from. Love that. Mm. Says Jesus is gonna set you free in the way that religion can't. So there's this massive buzz in the synagogue, right? Everyone's like, there's freaking out. And, and they say, dude, you gotta come back next week. Tell us more. So there's this interesting surge of, of, of interest. And, and so it says the next week, Paul goes back to church and it says many believed. So he comes back the next, next week and this is what happens. It says the whole city came to church next week, right? Love that. Almost the whole city gathered here to the world. So here's what happens. Uh, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary for the word of the Lord to be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So despite the word of God being received by many, some Jews, there were some men that stir up the leaders of the city and drive Paul and Barnabas out of their district, okay? The chapter ends by saying that the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. I've never been driven out of a city <laughs> and told never to come back, but I can't see that my response would be being filled, by, filled with joy after that, you know? They were. So here's the pattern, right? Shows up in the city, goes to the synagogue, and then preaches the gospel. And the pattern of his hearers 
will be this all the time, okay? Every time he preaches the gospel, this is what happens. They will be split dramatically, <laughs> There's a crew that's gonna say, yes, that sounds awesome. Forgiveness and redemption, the love of God, right? And the power of Jesus over sin, I'm in, right? And Jesus' kingdom, is, it comes and it heals them and it restores them and they get put into this power and this mission, this new community is just totally transformative in, in some of their lives. That's this group. Same gospel preached, same word said, half of the people, I don't know what the proportion is, some of the people respond this way and the other people are gonna respond this way. They're gonna say, get out of here. Nonsense, right? They'll say, that's not how God works. This makes no sense. You guys are disrupting the status quo. Get out of here, right? Now, I don't talk about God's free love and forgiveness, right? This is threatening our religious and cultural power structures, which we're going to see over and over again, right? Get out of here. They will stop their ears up to what is being said, not only will they not listen, but they'll say, you can't talk to anyone else. Get out in there. They will drive them out. Those are the two responses that the gospel gets. And it's probably what's happening in your heart right now. You are either saying you are out of your mind, crazy preacher. Either your heart is hardening right now to the love of God or it is being open to it. There is no neutral hearing of the gospel. Every time you hear it, you are either refusing it, hardening your heart to it, drifting away from your ability to hear the voice of God, receive his love, walk in his power, or you are saying yes to it. There's no neutral healing of the gospel. It's the same then, it's the same today. Every time the forgiveness of God is preached, every time the power of Jesus is proclaimed, whether or not you call yourself a Christian, look, church is the best place to hide, right? Whether or not you call yourself a Christian or not, your heart, in fact, I would argue the church is really the primary place where your heart will be hardened over and over again. You know what hardens your hands when you're using a plow? You say the plow hardened my hand. No, no, no. The plow didn't harden your hand. Your continual motion over and over again, if you continually refuse to surrender your heart and life to the kingdom of God, you will eventually lose the ability to hear the invitation at all. You will harden yourself to the power of the kingdom of God. What is it? So it gets that in scripture when it talks about God hardened his heart. You say, that's so mean. No, he had plenty to do in the hardening of his own heart, and so do we. Every time the gospel is proclaimed, you are either saying yes to it, yes, God come, reign more in me, I surrender more of myself to you, or you're saying no to it. And that has consequences long-term, not only in the power and joy of your life, but in your inability to hear the invitation at all. And it's the same today, y'all. Even today, you are either, your presence here is either pushing your heart further to submit to the goodness in the kingdom of Jesus, or your presence here is pushing your heart to resist it and reject it further and further. Thus is the nature of the power of the gospel. You don't see in the New Testament very often this kind of nominal, yeah, I'll take Jesus like the garnish on the side of my plate thing. You just don't see it. You don't see in the New Testament this kind of, I'll go to church on Sunday. Maybe I'll log in and listen. I don't know. Jesus is cool. He loves me, I guess. But then I'm going to do what I want. I don't want accountability, that's for sure. I don't want people messing with my life. I don't want to be vulnerable with others. I don't like gushy, emotional worship stuff. That's nonsense. You don't see that. What you see 
is a dramatic picture of the rejection or the reception of the kingdom of God. Either they bow at his feet and call him Lord, or they crucify him and say none of this. Some of us think we are responding to Jesus, think we are walking with Jesus, and in reality, we are only rejecting him further and further. There's no ambiguity in the New Testament as to whether or not you have surrendered to the kingdom. Jesus, help us. Give us clarity. Let's stand and pray.